Thank you for listening to this message from the pulpit of New Grace Baptist Church in Roanoke, Virginia. We hope the message you are about to hear is a blessing to you and your family. Uh, This morning we are on our final week of looking at our emotions from a biblical perspective. And this morning we're going to look at a heavy one. Uh, We're going to look at the emotion of shame. Uh, And every one of us at, at some point in our life have dealt with shame in one form or another. Uh, And shame can range from something as simple as embarrassment over something you've done to something much more serious. And most people uh, know what experiencing shame feels like, but we don't really understand the the severity of it. What, What role should shame, if any, play in our life. Uh, and a lot of people think that, that shame is just kind of an extreme form of guilt, you know, like uh, guilt over doing something bad. So you, you do something bad and you, you feel guilt about it, but if you, you feel really bad about it, then that's shame. And that's not really what, what shame is. Shame and guilt are, are different. Guilt is from the Holy Spirit, and guilt focuses on what you did, while shame is from the enemy, and shame tries to get you to focus on who you are because of what you did. You know, guilt says, I did something bad. Shame says, I am something bad. Now, shame can grow out of guilt if we don't deal with it the way that we were supposed to. We see that in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve, of course, they uh, disobey God and they take of the fruit of the tree of life. And as soon as they eat, the Bible says, their eyes are opened, they saw their nakedness, and they were ashamed. So they, they cover themselves, they hide from God. And so Because of what they did, they immediately felt shame. But shame can also be triggered by things that are done to us. You can have shame because of something you've done, or you can have shame because of something that has happened to you. Maybe you were abused, and that brings shame into your heart. Maybe you were treated in a way that made you feel worthless made you feel damaged. And so, of course, you feel shame because of that. And eventually, these things that you think about yourself because of what someone else did to you, you begin to think that they're true. Maybe someone uses shame to control you. They tell you you're worthless. They tell you that you're you're stupid or you're dumb or whatever. And eventually, you start to think that, that way about yourself. Maybe shame from, comes from something that you have, no dis, you have no control over. A disability that you may have. A, a weakness that you may have. Maybe, like me and like probably most of you in this room, your shame comes from the college football team that you like. Uh, because let's face it, if you're a UVA fan or a Tech fan, we should feel some shame this season. Uh, just trying to light it up because we are talking about a pretty serious subject. 
Uh, but maybe shame comes from something you don't have control of. Maybe, maybe you are, had faced divorce or gone through a divorce because of no fault of your own. You did everything right, but you were, you were cheated on. Maybe a spouse just up and left you, and you, you did everything you knew how to do, but it happened anyway, so it brings shame. Ed Welsh, he's a, a Christian counselor, he said, Shame is the deep sense that you are inherently flawed, unacceptable and unworthy of love because of something you've done, something done to you, or something associated with you. So the difference between shame and guilt is guilt is like a stain on a shirt. You can take it, you can treat it, you can wash it. It may take some effort. You may have to put in some money, you may have to take it to a professional cleaner, but generally you can get a stain out of a shirt. Shame is like someone disfiguring your face. You get a burn on your face and you can't get rid of it. There's nothing, you, you can't hide it. And it kind of defines who you are. See, shame says you are defective. Shame says that you're, you're damaged. You're broken. You're flawed. You're ugly. You're impure. You're disgusting. It says you are unlovable. It says you are insignificant. It says you are worthless and unwanted. Shame is destructive. You know, shame, even if it's short-lived, can have devastating effects in your long-term life. See, shame leads us to hopeless perfectionism. We, we try to cover up shame through performance. We can't admit uh, that we're failures because that would confirm what we feel about ourselves. See, and shame, it also leads you to harsh criticism of yourself and harsh criticism of others. See, people who, who are struggling with shame, they're, they're very hard on themselves. And because they're so hard on themselves, they kind of see their imperfections in other people. And so they tend to be very critical of other people as well. You know, it's been said... Hurting people hurt people. And that's true. If an an, you find an animal in the wild and it's hurt, don't go up to it and try to help it. I mean, you should help it. I'm not saying leave it to die. But you've got to be very cautious because hurt animals will lash out out of fear, out of maybe anger, and they can end up hurting you. Same thing with people who are hurt lash out to hurt other animals. People. Shame can also produce feelings of, of helplessness. You know, I know that this bad thing is going to happen to me because I'm a, I'm a bad person. And since I'm a bad person, nothing good ever happens. I'm never going to get a good relationship. I'm never going to get a good job. I'm never going to get a promotion because I am not worth any good thing happening to me. You believe the worst because deep down... You think you're the worst, and therefore you deserve the worst. The story we're going to look at this morning in Luke chapter number 8 is uh, an incredible story that deals with, with one woman's shame and how Christ lifted her out of that shame. And it's the answer for us when we, when we struggle with shame, whether our shame is because of something we've done or because of something that's happened to us. So let's look at Luke chapter 8. We're going to start in verse number 40. 
And it came to pass that when Jesus was returning, the people gladly received him, for there they were all waiting for him. And behold, there came a man named Jairus, and he was a ruler of the synagogue, and he fell down at Jesus' feet and besought him that he would come into his house. Now, the story doesn't start with the woman we're going to look at. It starts with, with a man named Jairus, and it's, it does that for a purpose. Because in a few verses when we meet this woman, we're going to see the, the stark contrast between this woman and Jairus. See, Jairus is an important man in the community. He's a leader in the synagogue. He is well known. He is well respected where he is at. He has a, a top position. And in this culture, men of Jairus's stature did not fall down at the feet of anybody. They didn't beg people to do anything. They, during this time, they would have worn very long, kind of elaborate robes. They never ran anywhere. They would not, you know, put themselves at the feet of any other people. It, 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 they never showed emotion. They never rushed. But here, here's Jairus, this well-known, powerful, prominent man, throwing himself at the feet of Jesus, begging for his help. Now, let's, let's see why he needs help. Verse 42. And for he had, an, he, he had one only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she lay dying. But as he went, the people thronged him. So Jairus, he, he's in a desperate situation. He's got a daughter, a 12-year-old daughter who is sick. And the doctors have tried everything. The doctors have basically told him she, she's going to die. And so Jairus kind of doesn't care about his position, doesn't care about his title, doesn't care about his power and authority. He runs to Jesus, throws himself at the feet of Jesus, says, you've got to help my daughter. If you don't do anything, she's going to die. Now we see in other stories, Jesus agrees to go with him. So Jesus is following Jairus to his house. And as he's following him there, this huge crowd of people kind of surround Jesus. They're trying to talk to him. They're trying to get his attention and talk to him. It's a, it's, it's a crazy scene. And so this large crowd kind of pushes around him. Now look at verse number 43. And a woman, having an issue of blood 12 years, which had spent all her living upon physicians, neither could be healed of any. Now, we meet the second person in the story who has an incredible need. But her problem is different than Jairus's problem. And her entire story is drastically different than Jairus' situation. Now, Jairus is there for his daughter. He is beseeching Christ on behalf of his daughter. This woman's going to God on her own. And the Bible says she has an issue of blood. It's, it's two Greek words that literally translated means flowing issue of blood. This woman dealt with severe uncontrollable menstrual flow for 12 years. This is a huge problem. She was more than just sick. She had severe chronic pain. Because of Jewish law, she was ceremonially unclean for 12 
years, which again, we hear that and we're like, you know, that's, that's not a big deal. But here's the thing. For, for 12 years, she would not have been allowed in public at all. For 12 years, she couldn't go to the temple to worship with, with other believers. For 12 years, she would, wouldn't even be allowed to be touched by anybody. Because if you touched her, you became unclean. So for 12 years, she's been an outcast. She's been forgotten. She's been alone. She, I'm sure she had hopes in her life. I'm sure she wanted to get married, wanted to have kids, wanted to start a life of her own, but, but those are gone now. She has no hope. For 12 years, she's been ignored, forgotten, pushed aside. Now, Luke is the author of this book, and he tells us that according to medical opinions of the day, she was uncurable. She had no hope. She'd, the Bible says she'd spent her entire family's, all of her family's money trying to find help, going to doctors, going to different types of, of people, going to every, you know, she tried the, 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 the medical route. She tried medicine. It didn't work. So I'm sure she tried essential oils and that didn't work. She tried all the things and nothing worked. She'd tried everything. She'd given all of her money. She was desperate and hopeless with no chance of doing, of having any help at all. But there's another detail that we have about her that's actually from something we're not told about her. We know the first guy in the story is Jairus. We don't know her name. We are never told her name. Jairus is a, a well-known, a prominent, a important figure in the community. She is a nameless, faceless woman that the culture and society has forgotten about. Now, that's in, in, everybody knows him, nobody knows her. And that's intentional. She is invisible to people. And it's as much as her choice as by society's choice. And we'll see that in how she acts. Culture has kind of shunned her. But because of her, her shame and because of the 12 years of, of just being forgotten about, she's kind of drawn back into the shadows. Now, shame does that to people. Shame makes you want to hide because you're afraid you'll get exposed. You'll be humiliated. That's in contrast to Jairus. Jairus here, he's a ruler of the synagogue. She's not allowed in the synagogue. He, Jarius is a household name. No one knows her name. But both of them, despite their prominence, despite their position, both of them need Jesus. Jarius has a sick daughter, a 12-year-old daughter. She's had an issue of blood for 12 years. That's important. He has a 12-year-old daughter that is dying. And so he goes on her behalf to to, to, to petition God to intervene. This woman's been sick for 12 years and she's got nobody to fight for her. She doesn't have a dad going to Jesus saying, I have a daughter with an issue of blood that if you don't help her, she's going to be, there's no help for her. She is having to go to God on her own. Now, like I said, shame 
can come from things that you have done or things that have happened to you. This woman represents both. She is a victim. She's not sick because of something she's done. It's her health has filled her. So she's, she's, not, she's not sick because of, of her decisions. It's just it is life has happened to her. She's a victim of circumstance, but she also represents the sin of, sin of mankind. She is ceremonially unclean with no hope of changing that. She represents all of us. Without Christ, all of us stand before God filthy, unclean, unrighteous, undeserving, with no hope of fixing it ourselves. You know, the ceremonial law, because of the ceremonial law, she was separated from society because of her uncleanness. We are unclean because of our sin. And because of our sin, we have been separated from God. Again, it goes back to the garden. Their sin brought in separation and shame from God. So this woman, she represents shame uh, because she represents someone who is experiencing shame because of something that happened to them. But she also shows us the shame that we deal with because of our own sin. So whether, whether your shame is legitimate because of something happened to you or illegitimate because of something you did, this story has a solution for us. Look at verse number eight, uh, 44. Uh, verse 33, neither had could be held of any. And she came behind him and touched the border of his garment and immediately... Her issue of blood staunched. She was healed immediately. Now, the book of Mark tells us that she had heard about Jesus and went to him seeking his help. Uh, but what did she heard? Well, there's a prophecy in Malachi that says when the Messiah comes, the wings of his garments would have healing power, which means that you, know, you could touch his hem, the hem of his garment and you would be healed. So she believes Jesus is the Messiah. She believes he's her only hope. And so she goes and says, well, Malachi says that the, the wings of his garments have healing power. So as he goes by, I'm just going to touch his garment. But here's the problem. She's not supposed to be in public. If someone recognizes her, and knows about her, she's going to get, get scorned and punished. And what, what would Jesus, a holy man, do if she touched him and made him unclean? So she sneaks up, pushes her way through the crowd, and as he passes, she reaches out and touches the hem of his garment. Now, the word touched in verse 44, we kind of get the idea that as he passes, she just kind of brushes it. The word touched in verse 44 literally means to grab hold to. So she didn't just, okay, I'm going to touch it. No, she grabbed hold of his garment until she got what she needed. And as soon as she received, as soon as she got what she needed, she was healed. Then look at verse number 45. And Jesus said, who touched me? When all denied, Peter and they that were with him said, Master, the multitude thronged thee and pressed thee and sayest thou, who touched me? So now this is an interesting question. Jesus is God in the flesh. He is, is all-knowing. He's already in his ministry proven that he knows everything. So is he really asking who touched me because he doesn't know? 
Of course he knows. And I love Peter. Peter says the most Peter thing in all of the Bible right here. What do you mean who touched you? Everybody's touching you, Jesus. What are you talking about? But he is not asking because he doesn't know. It's kind of like when you, when you have, we have children. You walk into your kitchen, the cookie jar is on the floor and it's empty. You go to the living room where your kids are watching TV and, you know, a few of them are sitting there watching. They, they're fine. They're, they look like they're just having fun. And then you got one in the corner with cookie crumbs and, you know, chocolate all over their face looking guilty. And you ask, who ate all the cookies? You know who ate all the cookies. You're not looking for an answer. You're giving them an opportunity to come forward and identify what they did. That's what Jesus is doing. He knows who touched him because everybody's been. But this touch is different. And so he is giving her a chance to step forward and identify herself because he's saying, hey, I need you to identify yourself because I have something better for you than just being healed. So look at verse 46. And Jesus said, somebody has touched me for I perceive that virtue is going out of me. That word virtue in the Greek, it means power. Now, everyone, yeah, everyone was pressing on him. Everyone was touching him. But this touch was different. Some people were touching him just because he's in proximity and I'm, maybe I, I'm pushed in that way and just brush up against him. Maybe I just, gotta, I just want to touch the famous man. But her touch was a touch of faith. Look at verse 47. And when the woman saw that she was not hid, she came trembling and falling down before him and declared unto him before all the people for what cause she had touched him and how she was healed Immediately. Now, she comes forward, but she's, she's terrified. She's been healed. She knows she's healed. She grabbed on in faith, believing that Christ would heal her, and she was immediately healed. And instead of coming forward and saying, hey, it was me, Jesus, you healed me, it's miraculous, it's incredible. She's terrified. Yeah, it, it was me. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to, to touch you, I didn't mean to do it, but... But it was me. She wanted to steal her miracle and get away. The last thing she wanted to do was be exposed. She's not sure she's going to be humiliated. She's not sure she's going to be rejected. Jesus could, could have her punished. But what happens next is one of the most profound moments in Scripture. It shows us what it answers the question what happens when you stand? Before a holy God exposed of all your sin and all your shame. Look at verse 48. And he said unto her, Daughter, be of good comfort. Thy faith hath made thee whole. Go in peace. Now, what he calls her is vitally important. Does he call her ma'am? Does he call her sister? Doesn't call her friend, doesn't even call her by her name, and he is God. He knows her name. He calls her daughter. This term in the Greek for daughter is the most intimate term of endearment that you can use for a younger female person. It, it's the only, and it is the only place in Scripture that Jesus addresses someone this way. He doesn't use the same masculine term for Peter or Mark or Luke or John or anybody else. 
The only person he ever looks at and uses this term is this woman. It is a precious term. Tim Keller says that you can translate this as precious sweetheart. This woman has been rejected for 12 years. She's been forgotten about for 12 years. She is called out for touching Jesus, and she is trembling, and Jesus says, Hey, sweetheart, it's okay. You're healed by your faith. Now, this isn't something that you would call someone you just met, unless you're a southern grandma. You know, southern grandmas call everybody sweetheart. But, you know, you meet someone brand new, some random girl on the street, and say, Hey, sweetheart, you're probably a creep. But Jesus calls her that. Now, Jesus looks at her. Again, remember this woman for 12 years, she's been cast out. She's been forgotten. She's been ignored. But this word in the Greek, it, it does mean precious child, but it has a deeper meaning. It also means accepted by God. She's been rejected by everybody. And Jesus says, you are precious and you are accepted by God the Father. And he says it in front of everybody, because everybody knew who she was. They knew her issue. And he says, the whole world may have rejected you, but God accepts you. You are precious in his sight. You know, no, uh, this woman who nobody wanted, she's referred to as special a precious sweetheart who no one would touch is being accepted by the creator of the universe. No one knows her name, but Jesus does. And think about her in contrast to Jairus. Again, Jairus, his daughter had Jairus, her father, to fight on her behalf. She had no one. For 12 years, she had no one to plead her case. And so Jesus pleads it for her. He won't let her just steal a miracle in secret because as much as he wants to heal her, he wants to do even something even greater in her life. He wants her to know, yes, you're healed, but you're also loved, accepted, cherished, wanted, and adored by God the Father. And there's something here we tend to miss. She is ceremonially unclean. Jesus is a holy man who is considered ceremonially clean. When an unclean thing touches a clean thing, the clean thing becomes unclean. It's like if you're sick. You don't you know, get, wake up one morning and say, man, I'm so sick, I got the flu. I need to go be around a bunch of healthy people so their health can rub off on me. That's not how it works. You make them sick. You know, you don't take, you don't look at, take a filthy, disgusting rag and say, man, this is gross, but my, my, my bathroom is clean, so I'm going to rub this all over my bathroom so that my bathroom will make this rag clean. No, you're making the bathroom dirty. So by touching Jesus, she is supposed to make him unclean, but she's not. She doesn't. She walks away clean. That's never supposed to happen. She's unclean. She touches him. He should be unclean. But instead, she's unclean. She touches him, and she is made clean. Where did her uncleanness go? Jesus absorbed it. He absorbed her uncleanness and gave her his cleanness. It's like Isaiah tells us. He was wounded 
for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. He carries our shame. This woman went away clean and restored, and Jesus, after this story, he's headed to the cross where he's going to hang alone, rejected, forgotten, and, and in shame because even God the Father, for a brief period, looked at him and saw this woman's uncleanness, saw my sin, saw your sin, and rejected the Son because of us. She goes away accepted, Jesus goes to be rejected by God the Father for her. She was restored. He was not. He removes her shame by taking it into himself. So, real quick, whether your shame is caused by something that you have done. You sinned. You messed up. You feel shame because of it. Or it's because of something that happened to you. The solution is the same. Jesus offers us cleansing through the death burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And through that, he says, it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what people think of you. When you put your faith in his finished work on the cross, you are accepted and precious in the sight of God. So, but what does that mean for you practically today? If you struggle with shame today, what does this story show us? This story shows us you need three things. Here's the first thing you need. Number one, we need to have our story heard. You need to have your story heard by others. Come out of the shadows. Shame thrives in secrecy. When you are hiding away what you are ashamed of, it just makes it worse and worse and worse. Take the chance of exposing yourself. Here's the thing. Most people, when you come to them and say, this is, what is, is, this is what I've done, this is what I'm feeling, this is what I'm dealing with, this is what has happened to me, most people will love you. They'll be glad that you did. They will want to help. And here's a, here's a biblical truth for you. You talk to someone about what you're dealing with, what has happened to you, and why you feel shame, and they don't accept you, they make you feel worse, guess what? You don't need them. Get rid of them. They ain't act, well, they're the best Christian I know. No, they ain't, because they're not acting very Christ-like at that moment. Now, I'm not saying, you, you, look, you come to me and say, Pastor, I've been, you know, killing and eating people for 15 years, and I just can't give it up. We're, I'm not accepting you. I will love you as I call the police on you. But if you come and say, hey, you know, I've done this, and it was my past, but it's over, I understand my, great. Hey, you know what? Doesn't matter. We'll get through it. We'll figure it out. Even if you're still struggling with it, guess what? We'll figure it out. If no one, and here's the truth, if no one accepts you, Jesus will. He's ready to meet you where you are when everyone else rejects you. See, verbalizing your shame, it takes away its power. It doesn't have any control over you 
when you let people know what you're dealing with. So tell people your story. Tell people about past abuse. Tell the insults that you've endured. Talk about your failures. Be honest about your temptations. Look, that's what I've tried to do with y'all for the last five years. Some of you for the last 11 years or 12 years since New Horizon. Y'all know, I have never been the kind of pastor who stands up here and goes, I have no struggles. I am a great holy man of God and you need to strive to be like me. No, I'm like, Paul, I'm a mess. I'm a wreck. I got all kinds of things that I struggle with. But hey, guess what? I'm following Jesus. I'm a broken guy trying to lead broken people to a healing Savior. And if you ever go somewhere and the pastor's like, I am perfect and you need get out of there. I've been in those churches. I've been in churches where the pastor's like, you need to start to be like, and you know what? Some of those guys are in prison right now. I don't want to be like them. I want to be like Paul, who says, I'm the chiefest of sinners. Just follow and say a Savior. Follow me as I follow him. you got to have your story told. You know, we feel shame because of the sin we struggle with in church. But here's the thing. Church should be the safest place on earth to expose what you're dealing with. Because we're a hospital. We're not a museum of great saints. We're a hospital of broken people trying to be healed. Like this woman, Jesus wants to speak to your shame. Here's the thing. It is okay not to be okay. It is okay to struggle. Because Jesus only saves and only helps broken people because that's the only type of people there are. You need to have your story told. Second thing we need, you need to have your head lifted. Jesus takes the initiative with this woman. He raises her head before she can raise her. She's looking at the, at the ground in fear and shame. And he says, hey, precious sweetheart, accepted by God, look at me. In verse, uh, Psalms chapter 3, verse 1 uh, through 3, David says, Lord, how are they increased that trouble me? Many are they that rise up against me. Many there be what say of my soul. There is no help for him in God. Selah. And that's all. Look, he says, there are people who are saying that even God can't help me. Look, says in verse 3. But thou, O Lord, art a shield for me, my glory and the lifter up of my head. The enemy wants you to feel shame. The enemy wants you to feel worthless. Christ wants to lift up your head. The power of your new life in Christ starts with your identity from Christ. That's why the first thing Jesus says to her isn't healed woman. He says, daughter, you are accepted by God. You are accepted by... And so when you want to get rid of shame, start by thinking, this is what... It doesn't matter what the world says about me. Doesn't matter what the what the enemy says about me. What does God say about me? God says I'm his child. God says I'm accepted. God says this is who you are. See, religion says change your behavior, be better, and then God will accept you. The gospel says God already declares you as holy and accepted and righteous in Christ as a gift, and He gives you what you need so you never have to have to be ashamed of, of what you've done. See, God said, the gospel says you are accepted by God, and because you're accepted, you're gonna want to change your behavior. 
Religion says you better change and then God will accept you. God says, I've already accepted you. I've already done everything you can. See, the difference in Holy Spirit conviction and shame from the enemy is the enemy talks about what you did and uses it to define you. You lied, so you're a liar. You cheated, so you're a cheater. The Holy Spirit starts with who Christ has declared you to be and rebuilds you through what and rebuilds you from that. It addresses your sin, but instead of saying you're a liar, so you lied, so you're a liar, it says you lied, and as a child of God, we shouldn't lie. Not you're a liar, it's hey, you're a child of God, and children of God don't act like that. Children of God don't behave that way. It helps you repair the damage caused by sin. So you got to know the difference between shame and guilt. God lifts our head by focusing on who you are in Him, not by defining you by what you did. He says you are an accepted child of God who did sin, but doesn't make you a sinner. It makes you a child of God who messed up and needs to get it right. We need our heads lifted. Number three, and finally, we need to be restored to community. This woman, and I believe this is why Jesus did this. Because she could have gotten her, her, her healing. She could have grabbed his garment, been healed and gone. And Jesus would have you know, let her be healed, whatever. But he wanted everyone around her to know, now she's healed. Now she's clean. Now she's accepted. Now she can be returned and restored to community. You know, feeling the embrace of Jesus will give you the courage you need to re-engage in a community with God. See, we have a reason, we have reason through Scripture to believe that Jesus or Luke included this story in the Bible because this woman eventually became part of the early church. So here's a woman who used to be confined by shame. She was living in secrecy. And now she's a thriving member of the first church of Jerusalem. And that's what God wants from all of us. He, he forms his church from, from broken, guilty people for broken, guilty people. People overwhelmed by shame. He declares them to be new creations and he endows them with power and purpose. His power and his purpose. So here's what we have to ask ourselves. Are we the kind of church where people that are not okay can find Jesus? Are you the kind of believer who people who are broken and battered by sin and shame can find the love of God? Are you the kind of person who others feel okay opening up about to you because of some secret shame? See, people around us are suffering. Often, you know, some, people, some of the things people go through are really unimaginable to us. And too often they suffer silently. Are we the type of community that says to them, it's, not, it's, it's okay to not be okay in church. Your story's safe here. See, the road to healing from shame begins as we speak it. 
as you come out of the shadows and speak to it, you'll hear the voice of your Savior saying, Precious daughter, precious son, you are accepted by God. And when we understand that, it begins to heal our wounds. And if your shame does come from or tie into things that you have done, the Bible tells us he takes that from us as well and makes us a new creation. There's no reason for a child of God to feel shame because God does it. Jesus did everything to take it from us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Thank you for listening to this message from New Grace Baptist Church. For more information about New Grace, check out our website at www.reachingroanoke.com.